the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about vaccines. We're going to talk about that hard story up in Minnesota. And then we're joined by Matthew Sorens from World Relief. You're listening to The Common Good. everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on a Tuesday afternoon. Hope that you're having a great day on a beautiful sunny day here in the Chicagoland area. I know, Aubrey, big day for you. Kids back in school. All freedom three feel? kids are back in school. Life is good. Although, here's freedom. I um, have to do some work today from home, and I had to work in my son's bedroom because my husband needed the other parts of the house. So I am uh, not fully free, but one day it's coming when the house will be mine again. That's when you look at Kevin and you go, hey, bud, you got to follow the kids out the door. <laughs> well, also, like he has an office, so I'm like, you need to go to your office, and the house is my office. <laughs> that that conversation has happened a few times in my home, <laughs> I could say, but it is the the sense of like I'm happy for my kids that they're back at school, but I'm also happy for my wife and myself that my kids are back. It's like a win win all the way around the From House. I'm sure it's uh, that way to say. It is today. such a celebration. Praise <laughs> God, they're gone. I love them, but they're gone. They're gonna be. Like, Mom, you sound so energized and excited today. <laughs> Mom, why are you in such a good mood today? <laughs> oh, that's really funny. Well, yeah, it's things that, that is a good segue into what I want to talk about. We haven't been doing much news. Uh, Ian and I, back in the day, we used to kind of try to start the first segment of every show, just being a little newsy, but that's not why people come to this show for news. But uh, I do want to hit on two very important uh, topics here. Uh, and the first is this. Uh, that uh, I, I saw this article, and, and I really wrestle with us, uh, this, Aubrey. I'd love to know your take about Dr. Fauci saying the other day uh, that even after you're fully vaccinated, after he's fully vaccinated, he doesn't think you should eat indoors or be in any places uh, where there's people who might be unmasked. And, and I find this, I'm just going to lay my cards on the table. I am really struggling with kind of this mixed messaging going on right yeah, now about yeah. the vaccines. I woke up to the Today Show today, and the headline was uh, FDA is suggesting that Johnson & Johnson be they, – that they pause all I Johnson & Johnson that. vaccines. And you're like, man, are people dying or this and that? And I don't want to underplay the issue. It's a right. blood clotting issue. Right. But it has been in six people out of seven million at <laughs> this point. Wow. So that's uh, getting inflated a little bit that it's this like major problem with the vaccine when really it, it may just be a normal, a typical vaccine response for a certain population. Yeah. And, and I guess I struggle with this and uh, is we want people to get vaccinated, but the very people who are telling us to get vaccinated are the ones saying on TV, eh, it might not actually solve the problem. They're sort of undermining like their own message, right? Exactly. And and so I get frustrated every time I hear that somebody and I'm not saying there's nefarious reasons. I know a lot of people think there are nefarious reasons for this, but I'm not one of those. But I just want to be like, hey, like, like, 
I feel like the best way to urge people to get vaccinated is to paint a picture of good news. Of not- life can be, right? Like now that you're vaccinated, you can eat indoors. You should go to restaurants. You should, you know, uh, go shopping and boost the economy. Again. Like that's the messaging we should be getting. It feels like it, does it? Like I'm, yeah. I'm, I've only gotten my first shot. I believe you've gotten both yours. Yes. I feel like once I get both of mine, I've already kind of loosened the reins. So I'm going to be honest with you. Like I went to Kentucky for a baseball tournament this weekend, right? But How dare you? I know, exactly. But I really feel like once I'm vaccinated, I'm, I'm just kind of going. No, you know I, mean, I mean, I am telling you, that's why I went to Indiana over the weekend to visit some friends, because I finally feel free to do those things. And part of it is I feel safe, but also um, because I'd, I'm not going to spread it to other people now. And so I, I wore my mask where we needed to wear it. But I, yes, there is a newfound freedom with the vaccine that we should all be celebrating. Let's get vaccinated yeah. and go back to life. Yeah. So I, I'm glad that you kind of feel the same way, because I really feel like this mixed messaging of of doom. And even when we're vaccinated, it might not be normal for two years. Then no one's going to get vaccinated. I mean, that's the hard thing. Like you're saying now, now people who were already on the fence are going to be like, well, what's the point? If I can't live my life, why would I get vaccinated? A hundred percent. I read, I heard somebody, I read it where they, they called in a tweet, they called Dr. Fauci, the, the number one anti-vaxxer right now, because his (laughs) words are causing people to not Uh, get vaccinated. Poor guy. You know, I, as a leader, I empathize with Fauci because, you know, leader, Leadership is hard. And again, I keep saying this, all of us who are leading right now over the past year are leading in a pandemic and we have never led in a pandemic. Now he has, he's led another pandemic, <laughs> Good point. Good but point. we, ha- you know, we don't, we're doing the best we can with the information we have at hand. And I know he's also doing the best he can with the information he has, but this did feel like a misstep. Like, it, all right, uh, buddy, you got to be pro vaccine. Or, or, and just all the way, you know, like encourage other, right? people to do it. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I want to get to the other major news story. Uh, and that is what's going up up in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, just oh, outside of Minneapolis. This is rough. Uh, I'm sure you've seen, uh, you know, for sake of time, I don't want to retell the story. I'm sure everybody has seen now what has happened. Here's what I want to do, though, because there was a, a press conference with the police chief yesterday. I just want to play what he said yesterday. Uh, and then Aubrey just wrestle with it a little bit. Like, mm-hmm. What's our response? What do we do here? Let's listen to the police chief up there in Minneapolis. It is my belief that the officer had the intention to deploy their taser but instead shot Mr. Wright with a single bullet. All right. So uh, he's talking about that the police officer, this woman, I believe her name is Kim Potter, uh, literally was meant to grab her taser and grabbed her gun. And 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 this and it lay, it ended in the death of uh, Deontay Wright. So what do we do with that story? Mm. What, what has just been your feelings as you've processed what you see going on up there? Here's my feelings, and I'm going to be really open with you, Brian. And and yes. under the umbrella of I love my local police, I am grateful for them, okay? Mm-hmm. But this kind of story continues to happen. And at the end of the day, whether or not we like it, racism is not only about intention, it is also about outcome and how our actions, how our attitudes neg- negative, negatively affect mm-hmm. people groups. And... I mean, I have so many questions. Why did the guy get pulled over for apparently having air fresheners? Why in the world is this cop pulling out a taser in that situation anyway? And also, I just question what senior officer doesn't know the difference between a taser and a real gun. I am skeptical that this is actually the truth. 
And I am just tired of black men and black women being killed because they're literally driving down the road. It has to end. Mm. Now, if, if it's true that this was an accident, my heart goes out to Kim Potter because I can't imagine living with that and carrying right. that. But the reality is I, it keeps happening and there aren't any excuses for it. I don't understand how it got to that point. The kid died. He's a 20-year-old yeah. kid and he died. I yeah. don't understand how it keeps happening. It's just not okay. Yeah, that's well put. I uh, The stuff I watched yesterday, I, I tend to believe that it was accidental, but yeah. I got, like you said, I don't think that makes it okay. And no one's saying it makes of it okay. Of course not. Of course not. She should certainly lose her job and uh, beyond that, right? You, yeah. There should be uh, consequences for the actions. But even if it was, like you said, a tragic mistake, there are so many questions to the story and it, and it's resulting again in mass protests and and in um, Minnesota, of all places, it's like right now, miles. while the George Floyd, uh, you know, the case is going with his, that police officer, it's just like, oh, Lord Jesus, come have mercy on all of us. Yeah, absolutely. They said 10 miles literally from where the closing arguments are going on in the George Floyd murder trial going mm. on right now. Uh, it's just heartbreaking to see again. At the very least, it's a like you said, even if I almost said. Best case scenario. There is no best case scenario here. But even if it was an accident, it's an unbelievable tragedy that is going to have consequences and needs to continue this conversation forward as to like, okay, then how do these accidents not happen anymore? Yeah. How do we, how do we prevent this kind of stuff from happening? I think the hard part too is, you know, I have a, I have a lot of black mama friends and I know they grieve over their own sons and it causes fear in their hearts to even let their sons like drive to the grocery store. Right. Or let their sons go on a walk at night. And those are things that as a mom of three white boys, I never have to think about. And and I I feel like as the church, we are called to weep with those who weep. We are called to lament with those who lament. We are called really to hold up our black brothers and sisters right now and just hear what they have to say, grieve with them and and really ally with them through action. And let's see if we can get some change to be made here. Yeah, absolutely. It's well put. Well, coming up next, speaking of change, we are going to shift over. We want to talk about the refugee issue going on right now in America. And there was no better person to talk to than Matthew Sorens. He is the U.S. Director of Church Mobilization and Advocacy at World Relief. He's also the National Coordinator coordinator of the Evangelical Immigration Table. You're not going to want to miss this interview. Matthew is brilliant, and you're going to understand a lot more about what's happening at our border and in our country after we talk to him next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us. And we're thrilled to be joined for the next uh, two segments by a friend of the show, someone who's been on the show multiple times. He's the U.S. Director of Church Mobilization and Advocacy for World Relief, also the National Coordinator for the Evangelical Immigration Table. His name is Matthew Sorens. Matt, how are you, bud? Thanks for coming back on. Yeah, I'm doing well. Glad to be back with you. Yeah, it's absolutely our pleasure. Hey, before we jump into the many things we wanted to talk to you about, for people who haven't listened before when you've been on, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. Um, So I work with a Christian ministry called World Relief that actually works in various locations all over the world. Our mission is empowering the local church to serve the most vulnerable. And that includes in three locations here in Chicagoland. Um, So I actually live in Aurora, which is where one of our offices is. And in the U.S., our primary ministry is focused on serving refugees and other immigrants. So 
Uh, we're one of That's great. nine yeah, nine organizations that work with the U.S. State Department to resettle refugees. They, they decide who comes in, but we're the folks there at the airport at O'Hare to meet them when they arrive. That's awesome. Ideally, in partnership with local churches. That's right. That's right. Well, uh, Ian and I had you on many times, and and a lot of what we talked to you about was uh, how the Trump administration had a really low cap on the number of refugees we were bringing in. And I, I was under the impression the understanding was under the Biden administration that would go way up. And so I read this. Let me just read the headline at The Washington Post. It says President Biden set to accept fewest refugees of any modern president, including Trump, report says. And so when I read that, I just said, we've got to have Matt on. I got to hear. I got to understand what's going on here. So help us understand what we're reading here in this Washington Post article. Yeah, well, if you're confused, um, we're confused as well. And Mm -hmm. and frankly, pretty frustrated. Yeah, Um, I think a lot of. Americans presumed some were very pleased about this, like us, maybe some were not pleased. But when President Biden ran on a campaign promising to restore the U.S. refugee resettlement program, um, he said during the campaign he would he would put the ceiling for refugee admissions back at one hundred twenty five thousand. which is not a historic high. It was actually above two hundred thousand if you go back to the 1980s. But it's higher than it's been quite a long time, higher than it was ever under President Obama and obviously higher than it was under President Trump. But the last refugee ceiling, it's always set at the beginning of the federal fiscal year, which is October 1st, was set by President Trump at a historic low of Mm. 15,000. And in addition to being at a historic low, it also had these kind of narrow categories of who could come. So there were certain uh, countries of origins that just don't fit into the prioritization categories. And we presumed that President Biden would change that shortly after he came into office. And it sure looked like he was going to because very early on, he issued an executive order uh, basically announcing that he was going to change that ceiling, as he'd said in the campaign. They basically clarified they would set the ceiling at 62500 for the second half of the current federal fiscal year and then go up to 125000 next year, which we thought was appropriate and we got excited for. And we've been preparing with local church partners to prepare for increased numbers of refugee arrivals all over the country. And then they, they submitted their report to Congress, which is a required step under the law, but Congress doesn't need to affirm that. They just basically need to be informed. And then for more than two months now, the president has not signed the piece of paper Mm -hmm. that is literally all that is required for the refugee ceiling to change. Wow. And we have, of course, asked behind the scenes, you know, reporters have asked publicly why this has happened. And there's really been no direct answer, except for that things will change soon. Hmm. I joked to a, a colleague the other day, you know, soon means different things in different contexts. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's yeah. true. In the book of Revelation, Jesus says, I'm coming soon. And I fully believe that. Yep. Uh, but I don't know if he's coming before President Biden signs the new refugee. <laughs> God soon may be different than Biden soon. Matt, let me ask you a question. Um, practically, for Christians who are passionate about um, refugees and, and immigrants and really would like to see our borders open up again and, and refugees to be resettled here, specifically refugees. Um, what can we do to put some pressure on the current administration? Uh, where can we go to say, we want you to sign that paper, Joe Biden? Yeah, I, I really appreciate that question because, you know, we were, um, I was respectful, I think, at World Relief, but also felt it was important to hold President Trump accountable on refugee issues. Mm-hmm. And we think the same needs to be exactly true for President Biden. Yeah. This is not about partisan politics. It's about what are the biblical principles that we think should be guiding us. Um, So one really helpful thing, even though it's really the president's decision, 
we, you know, most Americans will not be able to pick up the phone and call President Biden. <laughs> but if we get a hold of members of Congress and in, in convey to them that this is an important priority, some of them could pick up the phone and call President Biden or at least get close to him. That's true. So um, reaching out to your members of Congress and just encouraging them saying immigration issues are important and specifically the refugee resettlement is important. Um, that And we have tools for that at worldrelief.org slash advocate where you can, you know, plug in your address just to determine who your representative in Congress is and um, who your senators are. And it'll make it very easy to send them an email or make a phone call. That's great. And I would also say um, our friends at wewelcomerefugees.com have also set up a petition that's, I think, nearing 4,000 signatures now. And we've been updating the White House on that every few weeks. You know, these numbers keep going up because people are concerned and specifically Christians are concerned because they want the opportunity to once again, welcome refugees and help them integrate into communities, um, including those, which is a significant share of refugees who are persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ. So yeah. the longer we shove them out or keep them out, mm-hmm. more they are at risk overseas. Yeah. And Matt, I, that's where I wanted to go with you next. Some people might be like, well, who even are these refugees? Who are these people we're even talking about? Can we go a little more foundational? Just help us understand uh, who are the people who are coming in and, and what are some of the things they're trying to get away from? Yeah, yeah the, great question, Brian. So refugees under U.S. law are individuals who have fled their country of origin because of a well-founded fear of persecution that specifically has to be on account of their race, religion, political opinion, national origin, or social group. Hmm. So that's a you know a fairly specific subcategory of all immigrants. It's not everyone who's left their country, even though you know I, I'm very sympathetic to someone who's fled poverty or fled a natural disaster. Mm-hmm. But a refugee is specifically someone who's fled a credible fear of persecution for one of the reasons under the law. And as I mentioned, um, that's a diverse group of people. So they're not all fleeing the same persecution. Right. Uh, uh, many of the refugees whom we've served here in Chicagoland in recent years have been uh, Burmese. So from Southeast Asia, also known as Myanmar. Hmm. And that's a category of a refugee. Most of them are, are actually Christians. Some are also Muslims, but they're all, those are all religious minority groups in Burma, which is a primarily Buddhist country hmm. with a very uh, brutal, military regime that unfortunately some people may have seen in the news even in recent weeks down in new ways. Um, Others are, for example, we've had not in recent years, but, you know, back five or years or so, a large number of Iraqi refugees. Mm -hmm. Many of those were folks whose particular social group that got them in trouble was that they were translators for the U.S. military Mm. in, in the conflict in Iraq. And that, you know, as the U.S. has mostly pulled out of Iraq, that got them in trouble with terrorist groups who saw them as being allied with the Americans. Wow. And as a result, the U.S., I think, very appropriately committed to protect those people and then significantly reneged on that promise in the last few years as the mm-hmm. number of Iraqis wow. able to come in. I should say a lot of the Iraqis, about a third, are also Christians. Um, so the mm-hmm. majority are Muslim, but a significant minority are the uh, are Iraqi Christians, primarily Chaldean Christians, who are persecuted in Iraq in large part because of their faith in Jesus. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's really helpful. Again, we're being joined by Matt uh, Sorens, U.S. Director of Church Mobilization and Advocacy for World Relief, also the National Coordinator uh, for the Evangelical Immigration Table. Matt has also uh, written a book called Seeking Refuge on the Shores of the Global Refugee Crisis, as well as Welcoming the Stranger. So, Matt, we're thrilled to have you stay with us. Let me ask you uh, again, help us understand when we turn on the news right now, 
We hear a lot about what's going on at the U.S. and Mexico border, about unaccompanied kids, things that we heard about in the Trump administration that I think people thought would stop in the Biden administration. But now you see in the news it might be getting worse. And I don't really know how to make sense of what's going on. So, again, I think you're a great voice for us. Help us understand what's going on at the U.S.-Mexico border, uh, specifically with these unaccompanied kids. Yeah, it's a really complex situation, which I think is why it's it's really hard for people to grasp all the dynamics. Uh, basically, it's not new that you would have children showing up at the U.S.-Mexico border without a parent or legal guardian. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's such an old phenomenon that we've had laws in the United States for many years, going back to President Bush's time, mm-hmm. that uh, are frankly, I think, really good laws. It's called the Trafficking Victims Protection Reauthorization Act. That basically governs how our government treats an unaccompanied child. I think appropriately, because we don't want to send a kid back to a dangerous situation. Right, right. We, uh, the law says that when a border patrol apprehends an, uh, an unaccompanied child, that child should be turned over to the care of the Department of Health and Human Services, hmm. which is not law enforcement, but a different part of our government that presumably has some ideas of how to take care of a kid. Until such time as they can be placed with a family in the U.S., often their own family usually their own family, in fact. In fact, about 40% of the time, they have a parent in the U.S. Or um, in occasion, sometimes that's not possible. They are with a foster family until they can go to court and a court determines if they qualify to stay permanently in the United States or they have to be returned to their country of origin and can be done, and that can be done safely. That's how it's supposed to work. The law says that transfer from Border Patrol to Health and Human Services should happen within 72 hours, precisely because Everyone basically agrees that a bordering patrol, a border patrol holding facility, which is the images you've seen on television recently, is not an appropriate place for a child. Yeah. Right. What's happened? Well, so going back about a year when COVID started, the previous administration used some public health laws to basically say, because of the public health emergency, we're not going to abide by that element of the anti-trafficking law, mm. which is to say when children were apprehended. They were just turned over, mm. uh, either going back to Central America or turned back right over to Mexico, which was a con- situation we felt at World Relief. And we we spoke up with International Justice Mission and World Vision and various other Christian organizations to say, this is actually not a good policy. Yeah. Of course, we've got to protect public health, but we can't just turn kids back over to traffickers. Right. There must be a way to do both. So the Biden administration um, did not resume that policy of expelling unaccompanied children. Interestingly, they're still expelling families in mm. most cases, in mm. many cases, mm. and single adults. And actually, that's created, in my view, in our view at World Relief, a perverse, uh, I think unintentional, but a, a really negative effect where a family shows up at the border, wants to request asylum, which is to say they want to ask for protections from the U.S. government. They don't get the opportunity to ask, but they might hear that if you send your child over alone, they'll be protected. Wow. Mm. Wow. So there's a new sort of form of family separation that, again, it's not... It's not designed to be punitive or a deterrent the way that policy was perhaps back in 2018, but some of the effects are similar. Mm. And basically right now, the, the federal government's capacity to care for unaccompanied children is is overexceeded. There yeah. is just not enough space. Yeah, They are resolving that now. I mean, it's a better situation now than it was two weeks ago. So that's encouraging okay. that more kids are in the care of health and human services than are in border patrol facilities, but it's still what we would say is an unacceptable situation. Hmm. The solution to that is not to send kids back to traffickers again. Right. Absolutely not. But to both ramp up processing of unaccompanied children and an appropriate care, 
But also we think to look at how do we process families um, under the terms of the law, mm. we think we can do that safely, even in, you know, even with the COVID dynamics, you can give people COVID tests, you can even give them vaccines at yeah. this point. Yeah. And ultimately, we need to ask the question of why these crises happen every two to three years. Yeah. Mm. This is very similar to what happened in 2014 under President Obama, mm. under 2019 under President Trump. And at the core of it is a situation, particularly in Central America, especially Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador, that is a very, very desperate situation, especially for children. Wow. A mix of violence, a lot of it perpetrated by gangs, and extreme poverty, exacerbated by COVID, and then by two hurricanes uh, in the end of 2020, and then um, by corruption as well, which yeah. is why the solution probably isn't to write a check to the Honduran government. Like <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's business, a good point. But there are good organizations like um, well, various Christian organizations and other nonprofits doing really good work that can help to address some of those root causes that are compelling people to migrate. And I would also say to address the legal immigration crisis, if people could be resettled as refugees from Central America and come on an airplane and be met at the airport by World Relief and a team from a local church, very few of them would want to make a very dangerous trip across Mexico. Mm. Mm. But with the resettlement program all but shut down, and frankly, very few other legal immigration options accessible from within the country or nearby, People feel like their last option when they're in a desperate situation is to get to the border and avail themselves to the protections offered by U.S. law. Wow. We're talking with Matthew Sorens, the U.S. Director of Church Mobilization, Advocacy for World Relief, and National Coordinator for the Evangelical Immigration Table, also the author of Seeking Refuge and Welcoming the Stranger. Matthew, I would love to know how churches and individuals can get involved, what can we do to act like Jesus and to help refugees to, to help in this conversation? Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, we mentioned earlier advocacy, and that's really important right now. But also, there's very tangible ways for people to be in, involved. So especially in Chicagoland, we, we have World Relief offices, both in the city and in the suburbs, um, where even with low refugee arrival numbers, um, there are still opportunities to volunteer. Some of those are modified because of COVID still, but we even have virtual volunteering opportunities at this point. Oh, so you can cool. be an ESL tutor without leaving your house and without the refugee uh, or immigrant needing to leave the house. Um, and we do anticipate, you know, increasing needs for volunteers as we still continue to hope the refugee program will expand in the coming months. We want to get ahead of that by helping to train people now and helping prepare people now. And, and the last thing I would say, and I would, oh, I should also say that, you know, we, may end up serving some of those children who are currently at the border as well, because when they are eventually processed, they get turned over to their family members. Well, the north side of Chicago in particular has a very large Central American immigrant population. So a lot of their extended family who are likely to take them in are going to end up being uh, in our community. And World Relief will be eager to serve those families as well, just the same in many of the same ways that we would uh, someone who came through the refugee program. Hmm. The last thing I would say is it's so important for the church to think about these issues of refugees and immigration as a biblical issue there you go. and not just as a, a news item or a political issue. The policies, of course, matter. Um, but first and foremost, this is an issue that we should be thinking about by, the, you know, from a biblical perspective. I'm always struck by, you know, when Jesus is confronted with a large crowd of hungry people, his disciples' reaction is, well, send them away. Mm. And Jesus says, well, you should feed them. Yeah. And I think that should be something we think through as a church. Uh, our human reaction could 
be to see lots of people in vulnerable situations and to be overwhelmed. Yeah. But a Christ-like response is to offer the whatever we have, even if it's a little bit, and see what God can do with that. And, you know, we've been doing that at World Relief here in Chicagoland for almost 40 years and seeing God do some really amazing things when the church steps up to love and welcome people. The government has its job to decide who comes in and who's allowed into the community. But the job of the church is to be the people there at the airport. That's right. And um, we have lots of amazing church partners doing that. But frankly, we have more need than we have um, volunteers often. So it's it's an opportunity for individuals to give time, to give financial resources, um, and to use their voices to advocate. Let us point you to worldrelief.org slash advocate, worldrelief.org slash advocate. Matthew Sorens, U.S. Director of Church Mobilization and Advocacy for World Relief, as well as the National Coordinator for the Evangelical Immigration Table. Matt, you're always so kind with your time, and it is always so good to hear from you. Thanks for joining us again, Frank. Yeah, thanks for being here, Matt. Yeah, I was happy to do it. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us. Uh, Ever since Aubrey and I started together a week ago, almost a full week ago. (gasps) We're about to have our anniversary. (laughs) (laughs) That feels like something you and Kevin did probably when you were dating. Like, oh, it's been a week. It's been a week. We're so in love. Oh, it's been three weeks. Let's give each other presents. Uh, Well, one thing we've been trying to do is just add some fun just kind of recurring segments. So got to be honest, if you missed yesterday, am I a jerk or am I justified? You got to go, gotta back, and go listen. back. Absolutely. <laughs> you kind of landed on, you're pretty justified, but a little bit of a jerk as we talk about this more. Fun. Yeah. And we decided you were cheap too. That came up. Brian is cheap uh, and sometimes a jerk. That is not uh, inaccurate at all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but another thing we've been doing is just top five lists. So we did top five breakfast cereals the other day. Top five, just some random ones. Uh, but before I tell you what this one's going to be, our producer, Debbie, she's a whiz, isn't she? This is crazy. She's amazing. We're going to, she produced an open, a, a little jingle for the top five list. So let's get started. Top five, top five, top five, top five, top five things with Brian and Aubrey. Uh, I could, you said you want it as your ringtone. I could just listen to that, but here we go. <laughs> Aubrey and I are going to do our top five list of 80s and 90, early 90s television shows. So this is kind of when you and I, we're both 43. Uh, this is, am I allowed to say that? Am I allowed to give a woman's age? I'm not sure. Oh, I'm not embarrassed. I, I mean, I can't change when I was born. And I, and, and I age like a fine wine, so I only go. get better. <laughs> or, a, or a good cheese. I age like a moldy cheese. I only get better. <laughs> Some of us age like milk, right? Like just sitting there, but others... <laughs> Uh, but here's what it is. It's kind of shows from our childhood. So not kid shows. We're not talking right, kids right. or whatever. But 80s, kind of mid to late 80s, early 90s television shows, top five list. I want to go from five to one. Ooh, okay. Okay. So if okay. you've listed them in order, I have a very definitive number one on my list. I, I, so I think I know what your number one is. I but think okay. we've discussed this before. Yeah. I'm going to let you go first. Number five on Aubrey's top right. five number 80s five and 90s TV is, shows. This is in honor of when, for some reason, the 80s were focused on shows about aliens, especially sitcoms. Yes. And so my number five favorite show in the, from the 80s and 90s was Elf. What? An Elf. An A-L-F, that's short for alien life form. All right, Aubrey. Do you remember Elf? Uh, Not only do I remember, 
But I already wrote my list down, <gasps> and number five on my list what? is Alf. No, yes. are you kidding? Are you kidding? Alf. I loved joking. Alf. Wait, Brian, I still have my Alf stuffed animal from when I was little. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. Awesome. My kids have it. And hold up, Alf trading cards. Yes. That's <laughs> wonderful. No, I have it written in front of me right here. I wanted to write my list down so I wasn't swayed by you. And number five Look on my that. list. Look at that. That show Alf. is so influential for us. All right. I, you do not know my list. So let's see if we keep matching okay. up here. Okay. All right. We're both Alf. Number five. What's your number four? Oh, I, this is so hard to put in order. I am going to go with Fresh Prince of Bel-Air for number four. Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. It was funny. It introduced us to a little-known star named Will Smith. And every once in a while, DJ Jazzy Jeff showed up. That was a good show. Yes. Uh, this is getting a little crazy. That is not my number four, but that is my number three. No way. My okay. number three. So we're going to do this where it matches. I'll just tell you, and then I'll have you give another one. So okay. your number four is the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. My number three was the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. It was such a good show. A, we're not going to subject people to this, but don't you think that if I said right now, Sing the theme song, the oh. rap. You can do it a hundred percent. And I'd like to take a minute, just sit right there. I'll tell you how I became the prince of a town called Bel Air. I mean, the whole world would. I also think if you say do the Carlton, everyone knows. Like that, that move is so like pop culture specific right. and influential. Yep. He's a really annoying host now of, uh, <laughs> of uh, uh, my kids like that show. America's, America's Funniest Home Videos. Story. Yeah, he makes it not funny. But he, uh, he was great on The Fresh Prince of <laughs> Bel-Air. He was amazing on that show. All right. Yeah, so we could do the entire rap. But okay, so then I feel like you it. should say what your number four is. Uh, my number four, and uh, this is not popular to speak about now for obvious reasons, but back then was oh. my number four is The Cosby Show. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I feel like we should, <laughs> we should have a moment of silence for the Cosby Show. You're right, though. I loved that show growing up, but of course now you just kind of go, oh, oh. yeah, yeah. But as a show, as an '80s and '90s show, the yeah. Cosby Show was phenomenal. So you kept it off your list for cancel culture reasons. I, I did. I have there. to cancel Bill Cosby. There's <laughs> no, I, I, show. I have no, res- I have no other response than canceling that man. So the Cosby Show is also canceled. I'm sorry I'm, to all. I'm willing- sorry for Felissa Rashad because I love her. I'm going to differentiate from Bill Cosby's uh, his transgressions from the actual transgressions. Show. <laughs> Brian, let's pick a different word. Okay. Crim- criminality. <laughs> I'm good with that too. Okay. Okay. Go. All right. So, what's your number three then? We're going to okay. go off the board here. Uh, okay, man. I ha- I feel like I have some uh, honorable mentions. So this is hard. All right. Here I'm going. I'm going a little old school here. The love of my life, Mike Seaver was in this. Growing pains. Good show. Okay, that's a good call. That did not make my list. Maybe it needs to replace the Cosby show. Yes, that 100% it does. Uh, but I did love the growing pains. That's good. Okay, uh, so my next one's going to be more early 90s. This is more our like middle school, high school, college days. Okay, okay. Uh, but one of my favorite shows continues to be of all time, but, at, uh, but certainly on this list, Seinfeld. Oh, Seinfeld. I don't have Seinfeld on my list, but that's a good one, too. That is a good one, too. I love that show, and uh, it doesn't hold up that great, but I still love it. I've heard it doesn't hold up, though. I haven't gone back and tried to do the reruns, but I I have heard that about Seinfeld. It's true. Now, here's a show that completely does it, and I don't know if it's going to make your top two, because I loved it back in the day. 
Uh, it's not on my list, but one that does not hold up at all is Friends. <laughs> <laughs> so I actually rewatched Friends, and I think there are parts that hold up, and there are parts that are so cringy. You're like, oh, oh, yeah, right. oh, nope, nope, can't do that nowadays. <laughs> That's right. That's right. All right, you're number two. What what tops growing? Uh, okay, so when you said Seinfeld, that reminded me. I don't know. There's there's not actually connection to this, but this is a show I should not have been watching as a middle schooler. And yet my parents let me watch it. That would be Beverly Hills 90210. The second you started introducing that way, I went, you knew. it's 90210. There's yeah. no idea. Yeah. That show does also not hold up. Like the first one was about someone with AIDS and it was not handled well. But um, but Dylan and Brenda, I mean, I, I, you know, that was the other love of my life, I guess. Dylan McKay, Kurt Cameron and my husband, Kevin, in that order. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. I got to be honest. I did. I did watch some 90210 back in the day. So, all right. I'm going to give you number one. Here's the drum roll. If anyone has listened to this show, they know where I'm going. I know where you're one. going with this. Uh, number one, Kevin Arnold, Winnie Cooper. Yeah. It's the Wonder Years. It's got to be the Wonder Years. Yeah. I love the Wonder Years. Now, have you, <laughs> has that, does that show hold up? Have you, rewa- uh, have you rewatched it? So I have not, and I would like my kids to watch it. I think it will hold up, but I I think I just heard that it's on Hulu. I haven't been able to find it, but I believe it's on Hulu. There are a bunch of new 90s shows on Hulu, 80s and 90s shows on Hulu. That's really fun. By the way, totally messing with you before getting your number one. This will mess with your head. Uh-oh. But if they made The Wonder Years now with the same time gap as when oh, no. we watched it, what is remember it? how old it felt? Yes. Uh, it would be 2001. <laughs> Wow. Nothing like making you feel old on a Tuesday (laughs) afternoon. All right. Your number one show. I'm ready. Uh, Okay. This was so hard for me, but I loved her style. I loved her as a strong young woman. You know? You're going to go Punky Brewster. No, 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 no. You're very close. (laughs) This was like an upgrade, like a Punky Brewster upgrade raised by a single dad. She's got two brothers and her name is Blossom Russo. Blossom. No, 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 no. (laughs) I loved that show. Did you really? Yeah. That is oh, yeah. Not where I she had her cool. She had her cool hat with her with her blossom on it. I I imagine that show also does not hold up. Whoa, you're right. I can't even remember watching an episode of Blossom. Well, you there probably you weren't the target audience. I, but I, de- was I definitely not. was. I definitely was. All right, so that's our top five lists of '80s and '90s TV shows. Maybe we'll throw this up on Facebook and uh, Twitter. Uh, yeah, Instagram, I want to hear from the people. Yeah, I, I want to know what you think of each of our lists and uh, what we missed and what we did not. Well, that's. Uh, That's a lot of fun. Well, coming up next, we're going to dive back into some heavier topics. Uh, I want to talk to you about, is it possible to separate a message from the messenger? Hmm. Uh, And we're going to talk about it using a very specific story here next on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about hypocrisy. Also, can the church be a better evangelical witness to displaced people? And finally, we're going to end this day with some good news. You're listening to The Common Good. everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Really, really glad to have you joining us on this Tuesday afternoon. All right, I saw this story uh, and for me, Aubrey, I, I don't necessarily want to tear this story apart as much as I find it as a jumping off point to 
hypocrisy in general and mm. the dangers of money in general. And mm. uh, so let me give you this story. And I want you to think about this question. Okay. Can you separate the message from the messenger? Uh, or are they are they necessarily tied together? You might be wondering what the story is. Here it is. Uh, Black Lives Matter founder Patrice Cooler, Cooler, C-U-L-L-O-R-S, Coolers, uh, $1.4 million home draws criticism, calls for an investigation. Uh, and so it goes on to say this. The Black Lives Matter of Greater New York chairman Hank Newsom has questioned how much Black Lives Matter co-founder Patrice Coolers has contributed to the charity. It says... She has reportedly purchased four high-end homes for $3.2 million in the U.S. alone, including one recently in L.A. County for $1.4 million. And Newsom went on to say this. Here's kind of the money quote. He said, if you go around calling yourself a socialist, you have to ask how much of your own personal money is going to charitable causes. It's really sad because it makes people doubt the validity of the movement Hmm. and overlook the fact that it's the people that carry this movement. It goes on to talk about her salary uh, and other things. And so uh, that story in particular, here's why it's drawing such criticism. You have uh, really this kind of lightning rod organization, mm-hmm. Black Lives Matter, that talks a lot about income inequality amongst yep. many other things that now its founder is coming out to have a huge salary and buying millions of dollars worth of real estate. And people are going, hold on a second. D- does this now cut the legs out from under this specific organization? And I don't want to use this as a referendum for Black Lives Matter, but I want to say this. When the megachurch pastor makes a ton of money, does it cut the legs out from Christianity? When, you know, this mm-hmm. other organization that's that's spouting this and you realize their leader is not living up to the ideals, but is kind of living opposite, does it cut it out from under that? How do you process just maybe this story, but more so uh, leader and movement and how those are tied together. Oh, man, I, I feel like we are just as a culture right now being called to integrity. We need to be the same people on the inside as we are on the outside. And if we're promoting a message, we need to be the ones that are living it, reflecting it, um, embodying it more than anyone else. And so unfortunately, right or wrong, I do think it's a reality that this sort of thing could undermine, um, uh, you know, not only this woman specifically from Black Lives Matter, but for any leader that if you're not uh, consistent with your message, it is going to undermine and devalue the message. I, that's just a reality. And I, I do think this is a call for Christians to live into Psalm 101, which tells us to be the same in our house as we are outside of our house. This is something we've actually prayed over our boys since they were little. We are called, James calls us to be people of integrity where we say what we mean. Mm. And I, you know, I mean, it's a hard conversation about how much money should someone make? How should or shouldn't they spend their money? But I I think accountability matters. And uh, if you're going to lead something, you got to live what you're leading. What do you think, Brian? I agree with you. Carrie and I, my wife and I were talking yesterday on a walk about this, not this story, but this kind of subject about some of the uh, biggest uh, relief organizations or charities that we know of in which this the CEOs are making, you know, 500 grand, mm-hmm. 600 grand. Or yesterday, you and I did that story about Hillsong and yep. the, the Dallas uh, campus closing down and there being all these charges of the misuse of money. Yep. I, I think one of the takeaways here is uh, if you're going to spout a message, Christians, 
uh, or others. Uh, you're never going to be perfect, but your life needs to match that message. Otherwise, it's going to do greater damage uh, than it's going to do good. I would also suggest that one of the greatest ways that we trip up in this is specifically with money. Right, <laughs> and, right. And Jesus talks about that quite yes. often, doesn't he? Yep. Yes, and that there is great temptation around money. And so whether it be the stories we did about pastors and their sneakers and their shoes mm -hmm. or their houses or their private jets, I do think, let's take this to the church because this is kind of pointing the finger then at ourselves. I do sure. think that uh, that the culture in large around us is looking, especially fair or unfair at megachurch pastors going, wait a minute, they're making how much money? They, their houses are how big and they're yep. not paying any taxes at all. Right. They're doing this. And people are rightfully, I would say, calling it into question. Don't you think, and Jesus, like you said, talked about this often. Don't you think that how Christians and Christ followers handle money specifically is such an important um, indicator or topic right now in our culture that either lets people go, okay, they live differently or right. no, this is just right. a scam. This is kind of just a money scam. It's interesting because I, I just did a sermon on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. And there are lots of places where in Christianity, we hold things in tension. Things are both and. We talk about this mm -hmm. a lot, like joy and pain, already not yet. But the issue of money, I mean, Jesus is really clear. You cannot serve God and serve money. Like faith and worship or, or uh, the way you spend and the way you worship have to be aligned if you want to be a godly person. And so I think we have to continually be like, okay, Lord, I uh, I like the feeling of having money. There are things <laughs> I want to spend money on. Yeah. But um, am I worshiping you or am I, am I bowing down to idolatry? Am I bowing down to money? Am I bowing down to power and wealth and the things that come with money and just continue to have the Lord convict us? so that we live rightly when it comes to our spending and our intake as well. Because, I mean, that's another question is like, how much is too much? Right. And um, I, I don't know how to answer that really, but I know that it has to be in submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Absolutely. And I just think we need to just be really honest because sometimes as Christians, we go, well, I'm never perfect. Nobody's perfect. But right. it's what we talked about yesterday. We are ambassadors of Christ. Mm -hmm. We are what people see uh, when they see us, the church or the Christ follower, and they they look at us and go, okay, that's who Jesus is. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And that's, you know, we close with this. That's both opportunity and pressure. And But I think that's a legitimate pressure, just like how my kids in some ways, and I don't put this pressure on them, but uh, it, just how my kids are a reflection of their mom and I. Yeah, right, <laughs> you know? right. Uh, we reflect Jesus and how we live reflects him. And, and and I guess the question is, and I'd love to know if you actually ask yourself this question. I guess the question is, how am I representing Jesus today? How am I mm. representing Jesus with my life, especially as someone who calls themselves a pastor? Yeah. And how, and specifically in this area of money, how am I representing Jesus with my finances? Yeah. Right. Because I know, I mean, even for me, like I'm a gal who loves to shop. And so it'd be easy for me to spend my money as soon as I get it. But I, I do think like, again, I, I think it's time for us to go back to some old school church things. Let's get back to tithing. Let's get back to giving. Mm. Let's get back to giving to donations that are, are following Jesus and 
um, the way of Jesus. Even I think the way we shop, let's support local businesses, let's support Christian businesses, minority businesses, women businesses. And then I think this is really key, especially for those of us in leadership. Are our finances open to someone who can hold us accountable and not be yes men, but actually um, uh, help us honor God with our finances? I don't necessarily think like, does the whole church need to know your personal Brian Fromm family budget? No. Right. Um, but is there someone in your life that sees how we're spending or sees the way we're honoring God to uh, with or, or not honoring God to help hold us accountable? Really good. And so we wanted to raise this topic because I think hypocrisy and also just the reflection we have towards our culture of Jesus is such a huge thing for us to think about and something that I'm not sure the church in general does very well these days. So want to challenge us a little bit. Well, coming up next, somebody that we really enjoy on this show, Russell Moore, uh, he wrote a newsletter that asks this question, why the church is losing the next generation. We're going to talk about what Russell Moore had to say next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. Really happy to have you with us on a beautiful Tuesday afternoon. Somebody that we've read often over the last two years is a guy by the name of Russell Moore. And Russell Moore uh, is regularly in the headlines because uh, he's very prominent in the Southern Baptist Convention. But Russell Moore, I uh, cards on the table, I tend to agree with a lot of what Russell Moore has yeah, I to feel say. like, especially lately, he's been saying some great stuff. Yeah, but he's also been calling out mm-hmm. uh, not just the church, but I would say the people within the church who are very tied politically uh, to former President Trump or to even just politics in general and kind yep. of meshing those together with the church. Uh, and wouldn't you say Russell Moore has gotten a lot of not everybody enjoys Russell Moore. We'll put it that way. Isn't that true? <laughs> not everyone enjoys Russell Moore. I, yeah, that's true. But we do. We do. It tends to be Russell Moore and Beth Moore. Anyone named Moore. <laughs> You're in trouble. In the crosshairs these days. But <laughs> Russell Moore writes a newsletter Uh, And he wrote one this week asking, why is the church losing the next generation? He's not just making that up. It's kind of coming off of the Gallup poll Mm -hmm. uh, a few weeks ago that kind of said like almost 50 percent. I believe it said 47 percent of of younger uh, people aren't going to church. Uh, they're, they're not really part of quote unquote organized religion. And so it's, and we've talked about this, but what's going on here? And so I want to read just how it's a wonderfully written newsletter. I'd encourage you to read the whole thing, but Aubrey, I'm going to read the end of it for us. Okay. Uh, because I think it's the money line. And then I'd love for you to react. He says this, the church will survive even here in America. But along the way, a lot of 15-year-olds will be hurt. He talks about how as a 15-year-old, he even contemplated suicide and Mm. was just confused and hurt by his church. He says a lot of them will conclude that the gospel is just one more aspect of political theater or outrage culture or institutional self-perpetuation or worse. Mm. They will be wrong, of course. But as Jesus put it, woe to the person through whom the stumbling block comes. Wow. We're losing a generation, Moore says, not because they are secularists, but because they believe we are. Wow. What this demands is not a rebranding, but a repentance, meaning, as the Bible does, a turnaround. 
Stranger things have happened, and that's good because we will need it. We will need to be the people of Christ and in him crucified, the people of a word that stands above all earthly powers and no thanks to them abides. Hmm. Somewhere there's at least one 15-year-old who needs to see if we're such a people, maybe even if his life depends on it. Again, more earlier in his article talks about how he literally thought about committing suicide because of his confusion and where he was at Hmm. as a 15-year-old. You and I love the church. We're both pastors. We have started churches. We talk a lot about the church on this show. Uh, I find what Morse writes here both sobering and hopeful kind of Mm -hmm. in the same time. Uh, But what's your reflection just about what he says and bigger than that, kind of why the younger generation might be pushing away from the evangelical church right now? What I appreciate about what Moore says here is because I feel like a lot of times in these conversations, you get one generation blaming the young generation. Mm -hmm. Well, they just, you know, they're just, I don't know, fill in the blank with whatever just they are. And what Moore's doing is calling us as like kind of the current church leadership, the current church generation, whatever, to look at ourselves and really to ask ourselves, have we made the gospel something that it isn't? And is part of the reason that next generation is leaving church because of that? Is it our fault? And I think we really before the Lord, have to humble ourselves and say, God, would you just clear away the rubble? Would you clear away the mess that we've made? And by your grace and by your mercy, by your power, would you make your gospel the main thing again? Would you make Jesus the main thing again? I do believe God is kind. Of course, God is able and God will do that. But my heart, I mean, this actually breaks my heart a little bit hearing this because I what what is exciting to me is I do think the next generation is longing for authentic Jesus. Like they just don't want the trappings, right? They don't want all the outrage. They don't want all the cancel culture. They don't want all the politics meshed in. They want true, genuine sort of that diamond faith that is pure as can be. And they want experiences of God. And so this is a moment I I really think for um, revival. I think it's a moment for the next generation to show us what the church should be, what I hope and I praise that we don't lose them in the meantime. Yeah. Because I think they're going to do mighty things for the church, for the kingdom of God, if we don't lose them. Yeah. I think what's fascinating in this article is that Russell Moore has devoted his life to politics, right? Like he's yeah, in politics. That's true. But he says at the age of 15, one of the things that threw him so much, he grew up in the Bible Belt down in the South, and he just said, it was the enmeshing of politics and kind of the losing of Jesus that just threw him to the point that he didn't know if he could go on. Wow. Uh, he talks about, and we grew up with these. I know you didn't necessarily grow up in the church, but we grew up with voting guides in the back of our church. Oh, wow. Uh, Did you really? Oh, yeah. And other things where it was from these well-meaning organizations, but it kind of said – you know, this is kind of how Christians vote. These are the policies we need to be most concerned yeah, about. Yeah, certainly I, I do. I mean, you know, I, I came to Christ a little later, but certainly I there was some pressure like this is the way Christians vote. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and let me just read something else Moore says. He says, uh, all of this was terrifying me. He talks about the politics and the other things, the scandals, because I really believe that Jesus was the son of the living God. I really believe that Jesus loved me. And if mm-hmm. the gospel I had been given uh, was really just about finding ways to get voters to back party bosses or to fund prostitutes and cocaine for some preachers wow. on TV, then that would mean more than just an adolescent cynical awakening. He says mm-hmm. it would mean that the universe is a random, meaningless void. 
red in tooth and claw. It would mean that the preacher who beat his daughter for dancing wasn't an aberration, but was instead the way the cosmos is right down to the core. And that Mm. was a horrible thought. Like I find this to be so convicting because Moore's point is it's not okay where we just go, yeah, there's going to be abuses. There's going to be this, but Jesus loved that, especially at a young impressionable age. Right. These things are necessarily like uh, intricately linked together. Yeah. And that when, 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 when teenagers or young people see, I said, I'm now old. I say young people. (laughs) Yeah. When they see the church kind of enmeshed in the wrong things yeah. or turning a blind eye to sin right. or excusing a political candidate or whatever else it might be, younger people go, well, then that must be what this faith is all Ugh. about. And now you've just opened the door to great cynicism. You've opened the door to just a, a rejection of the yep. faith. And then you yep. look back and you go, who can blame them? You know, that's it. Yeah. And so I just think that we need to really take seriously, and I know people do, but, uh, you know, we need to take seriously the meshing of politics, what we talked about last segment about the dangers of money. Mm-hmm. Like, we're not going to be perfect, but really think about your own kids or the teenagers in your church. What are they learning about what it means to follow Jesus from looking at their church, looking at their pa- pastor, yeah. looking at the yeah. culture, looking at quote unquote, evangelical culture around them. So I wanted to throw that in front of us. Uh, Russell Moore, such good and challenging words. So good. I'd encourage you to go read this. Well, coming up next, we're going to circle back to the topic we talked about earlier with Matthew Sorens, with just this article from Religion News that says how the church can be a better evangelical witness to displaced people. We're going to be challenged by that from Religion News next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. I want to circle back to it with an article, an opinion article by Eugene Cho. Uh, Eugene Cho, also fascinating. We've had him on the show before. Oh, nice. Uh, and uh, I love his book. He is a co-editor of No Longer Strangers, Transforming Evangelism Within with Immigrant communities. Wow. Uh, I think Cho also wrote a, a book. I'm going to get this wrong, but I was recently reading, I believe his book that was entitled, literally, I said, Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk. I believe it's called. Oh, come on. Really? Yeah. I might've gotten the title a little wrong there, but yeah, wow. it's great. It is wonderful in this age that we live in. That's what we had him on to talk about uh, a couple months ago. Uh, but he wrote an opinion piece at Religion News, religionnews.com that says, how the church can be a better evangelical witness to displaced people. We have a duty not to let our politics blind us to the image of God Mm -hmm. in our neighbors. Let me just jump us in. We're trying not to read a ton of articles, but I just think this one, we just need to kind of sit in a little bit. He said, the UN Refugee Agency reports that there are over 80 million forcibly displaced people currently in search of a home. Uh, In 2019, one person suffered displacement every three seconds. In these numbers are the makings of a once-in-a-lifetime crisis. This is what Matthew Sorens talked to us about earlier in the show. Yeah. But their sheer magnitude can sometimes make the problem seem abstract. We must mm-hmm. always remember that behind terms like displaced and refugee and asylum seekers 
are global neighbors created in the image of God. They need comfort and care. They need attention and welcome. Our mainstream discourse, far from encouraging us to show the displaced the welcome they deserve, is driven by political agendas, bigotry, and half-truths to talk about refugees and other displaced people in a narrative of fear and outrage. This cycle of negativity may generate clicks, but it doesn't generate compassion. Wow. The church can and must be a better witness, Joe writes. If we build our Christian witness upon the foundation of authentic, welcoming love, the church can become a shining light of joy for the suffering and hope for the hopeless. Let's stop there. Let me take that. Why why don't you react to that specifically around what Matthew Sorens told us about refugees? But then I want to take that last line and kind of make it a little more general. But what talk to me about what you hear from Eugene Cho here. You know, I I think what I'm hearing is simply let's um, let's set aside the distractions. Let's set aside some of the political agendas and let's get back to loving the sons and daughters of God who have been created in the image of God, who deserve honor and dignity and who are hurting. I mean, that's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus would do. And that's what Jesus calls us to do as his representatives. And, I, you know, I, I'm just thinking anecdotally, there's a few families at our church that are partners uh, or friendship partners through World Relief. And so there's a few refugees that our church has helped resettle and provide homes for. And, you know, their kids are in our Sunday school classes and Kevin and I have gotten to baptize them. And what a joy yeah. and a privilege it is to, I mean, these, I'm thinking of the refugees at Renewal their stories are so painful. The hardship, the pain, the trauma, the tragedy that they have lived through is beyond the pale. And the fact that the church has the opportunity to come around some of these refugees and love them and learn from them. And our churches are better places because of their presence in our churches. I just think there's no... There's no replacement for that. And really, there's no excuse not to. This is so clearly the heart of God to love refugees, to love the displaced people, to bring, especially, I mean, not especially, both Christian refugees and refugees that will come to Christ simply because they've been brought over in a church partners with them. I, I mean, let's remember that we are called to make disciples. And this is one way that we can do that. That's really well put. He goes on to say, Cho goes on to say later, Uh, But as followers of Christ, we have a duty not to let our politics blind us to the image of God in our Mm. neighbors. We could disagree about policy, but we can't disagree about basic empathy and compassion. Let me take this away because I think we've done a good job with Matthew and and now here talking about the immigration uh, issues and debates. But talk to me about that image of God in our neighbors, even when we disagree vehemently, whether it be about belief systems or politics or the person just annoys you, whatever else it might be. I feel like one thing that we try to do a lot on this show is help people understand that Imago Day, the image mm-hmm. of God is such a driving force to how we treat our neighbors, our coworkers, yeah. Yeah. people we disagree with. Uh, how would you help people better understand that? And what's the opportunity for the church right now? If we get this right, what will this even look like in our communities? Yeah, I I love this question. In fact, the next book I'm working on, I wrote a lot about Imago Dei, the image of God. Uh, It is clear from Genesis that every single human being, period, was created in God's image. That means every single human being bears God. We are God bearers. In fact, in Hebrew, uh, scriptures talk about how we are God's living statues. And that is 
Christians and non-Christians. That is men and women. That is people of different colors. That is even people of different sexualities. Now, what we know is that sin has um, marred and broken the way we bear God's image, but it Mm -hmm. has not broken God's image. God's image cannot be broken because ultimately God's image is Jesus Christ. That's good. And so we have to, when we are with people who are different than us, who don't believe the same things as us, who don't live the same lifestyle as us, we have to have that foundation above all, not they're sinners, they're sinners, they're sinners, but this is a fellow image bearer. This is someone that God created with love and with dignity and with destiny and with a birthright of goodness. This is someone who can come to know Jesus because Jesus wants them to. And so we need to treat them as if they are people on the way to following Jesus because they were made by Jesus with love and with goodness. And this is a hard thing to do, especially when it's someone you disagree with, when it's a neighbor whose dog is barking late at night, you know, when it's a family member you're fighting with. But I think for us to continually practice humility, to go back to the Lord and ask us to help see all people the way he sees them, man, that's going to be a game changer. Absolutely. Well, you you preach. Go, go right there. <laughs> I'm passionate about it. <laughs> and what I would tell people out there is uh, I don't think the call – and people could disagree. We'd love to hear from you. But I don't think the call on us as Christ followers is to view other people as enemies to be defeated. <laughs> I mm. don't think – but how often do we do that culturally yeah. but also yeah. in the church? Yeah. Like, this is my enemy politically or like you said, uh, it might just be uh, – you know, religiously, well, they, they believe something else. Now they're mm-hmm. my enemy, whatever else it might be. We don't demonize and try to defeat people and make them our enemies. That's not the way of Christ. And I think you and I would both go to our grave believing that and preaching yes. that. Yes. Uh, and, it, and it opens up a huge opportunity for us as Christians to really reach people. Well, this is going to be a common drumbeat to our show going forward. Uh, the Imago Day, and and what does it look like to be a Christ follower in such a divided culture? Well, we are going to end this show, uh, you know, just taking a deep breath. We're going to go to the Good News Network. We're going oh, to talk I can't about wait. Good I love news, these. And we are just going to read stories that are going to put smiles on your faces. Ah. That is next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for some... Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you join us today on this Tuesday afternoon. We hope that you're enjoying yourself today. Uh, Hopefully you got a nice night ahead of you to enjoy uh, just some rest and relaxation as we head to the middle of the work week. Enjoy your Tuesday night. Exactly. One of our favorite things to do here, especially since the pandemic hit now, gosh, 15 months ago or whatever it's been, Uh, is to just try to put a smile on people's faces where we can. And we learned about this website uh, about a year ago called the Good News Network, uh, where they will just write good stories. I love it. Goodnewsnetwork.org. It's not news. It's instead just supposed to put a smile on your face to remind you of the good things that people do and the good that's going on out there in humanity. So I put up five stories. We're going to get through as many as we can. And uh, people, the, the only goal of this segment is for you to listen to us read these stories and you go, 
oh, that made me feel good. That made me feel good about life. (laughs) Exactly. For you to leave with a smile on your face. All right, Aubrey, I gave you a choice of five. You start with with, with whichever one you want. Yes, I am doing this one in honor of my best friend who has been battling stage three breast cancer all throughout the pandemic. And my heart is heavy for her right now. So I want to read this one because it's very good news. This cancer surviving Girl Scout broke the record selling 32 thousand boxes of cookies wait for it with proceeds going to sick kids i love it Mm, she's eight years old the article says as she as an infant she took on sarcoma and won she took a huge step forward in helping other kids by breaking the record for selling the most boxes of girl scout cookies in a single season and then she's donating a huge chunk of the proceeds to chun to fund childhood cancer research and to an organization that feeds the homeless. So here's a little girl giving back to her community out of her own story. I just love it. That's awesome. Her name is Lily. She's eight years old and she is on fire. That is good news. Next one. Uh, School surprises hero custodian with $35,000 collected as a special gift of thanks. It says this. The world is full of everyday heroes, people behind the scenes who go out of their way to make life better for all of us. Oftentimes, they're not recognized. When Raymond Brown, head custodian of Edenton's White Oak Elementary, didn't take home the North Carolina School Hero Award he'd been nominated for last year, an entire community led by one determined mom got together to let him know how much they appreciated him. He's kind of our rock, our foundation of what we do here, said the principal. Probably what makes Mr. Brown the most special is he works really hard to build relationships with the students. Nobody knows that better than Adrian Wood, whose son Amos has formed a special bond with Brown. AC Amos has autism, which can make finding friends among his peers a challenge. He and Brown, however, encountered no such obstacle. It says he got attached to me. I got attached to him. So I gave him the name Famous Amos. When the kids at the school realized that there was something special going on between the seven-year-old and the school's favorite grown-up, it helped them see Amos in a way they hadn't seen him before. And so when he didn't win this award, uh, Wood went through the usual school. Oh, it says that uh, like other children, Wood went through the usual school-related worries. But having a child with special needs was another uh, experience altogether. Hmm. Sending Amos to school was such a different path, she said. He was three when he started school. He didn't speak. Uh, Amos started saying, though, hey, Brown, when he saw his uh, favorite custodian, he wasn't even saying daddy at that point. So it was really something. So the story keeps going. But she used her blog as a platform to as she saw right or wrong when he wasn't given the North Carolina Heroes Award within a week. She'd raised thirty five (gasps) thousand dollars from 2,000 people around the globe, and she plans are in the works to shower Brown with the kudos he Aww. deserves. Oh, oh I love that one. That one is amazing. Such Makes you cry happy tears. Okay, I got another one. You ready for this? I am ready. All right. Travel agent helps aging veteran pilot pals go on a dream boys trip without costing them a dime. Nice, a big-hearted nice. woman has helped three veteran pilot chums go on their dream last hurrah boys trip. She covers the cost of everything. She helped them go to the Reno Air Races in Nevada. Okay, listen to this. 90-year-old Jack was calling from an Oregon-assisted living facility where he's become best buddies with David Crawford and Dick Snyder. Mm 
They happened to be former pilots too. They got along uh, well. They became really good friends. And um, travel agent Julie, I don't know how she got involved in their life. The story doesn't say that, but she began to do some research on tickets to this event. And she found out that um, they wouldn't be available until later this year, which saddened Jack because he was like, I mean, this is a little sad, but it says, I might not even be around by the time Mm -hmm. the tickets are available. So Julie decided she had to find another option for the buddies. She found something. Arrow Leggings Biplane Rides offers biplane experiences in the town where the three veterans live. She could give them a day up in the skies for free, of course. So this is cool. Julie posted her idea in a travel agents group on Facebook. Donations began pouring in, raising over $1,000 needed to fly all three men up. Isn't that cool? I love that. That's good. That's good. Okay. Two more to go. Uh, Affordable housing landlords uh, starts eviction fund and is shocked, raising $9 million to keep 3,000 families in their home. Wow. Here we go. When when Mary Stagmire was 11 years old, she was the Monopoly champion of her sixth grade class in Atlanta, Georgia. And she knew right then that she wanted to be landlord when she grew up and what a compassionate landlord she became. After graduating college, she started investing in old, affordable apartment communities and realized that many of her renter families were low income, single parents who needed services like after school programs and playgrounds for their communities. In response to the demand, she launched her own 501c3 nonprofit that provides free on-site services to families living in affordable apartment communities. Hmm. And Star C has since become a godsend for families. It says many children have come through the Star C after-school program and are now doctors, plumbers, school teachers, earning good wages that move them out of poverty. A chance meeting in 2017 with Bill and Melinda Gates Uh, And Matthew Desmond, author of the Pulitzer Prize winning book, Evicted, opened her eyes. Even with her rents below market, some of the tenants struggled to pay rent. So after COVID-19 hit, many of her tenants were laid off from their work. So in April, Star C launched an ambitious $50,000 GoFundMe campaign for eviction relief. Wow. And the response was shocking when they raised nearly $50,000. But adding icing to the cake... The local municipal government of Cobb County found out and quickly voted to donate $1.5 million of their of their stimulus. Other municipalities like Fulton County followed, and they now have raised over $9 million from governments and foundations, giving the ability to help over 3,000 families avoid eviction. Hey, if you ever wonder what can I do as one person, there's a wonderful story. Okay, we got a minute and a half left. You okay, got one here more we story go. Okay, us. this is a great one. And I think our people need to go on goodnewsnetwork.org uh, to see this family's photo. But a nearly retired couple adopts seven siblings, seven who just <laughs> lost their parents. And the headline says, if not us, then who? Uh, when the prospect of an empty nest is bittersweet, most parents look forward to some kind of interrupted couple time when their kids finally fly the clue. Brian, I know you and Carrie feel that way. Kevin and I certainly Coming. feel that way, right? <laughs> <laughs> but for one California husband and wife, rather than cozy retirement, they found themselves feathering their nest all over again with seven adopted kids. It says the Odyssey began back in January of 2019 as Pam Willis was scanning Facebook. She says a post titled Seven Siblings in Need of a Forever Home hit her like a ton of bricks. 
The story revealed that after the children's mother and father perished in a car accident, a year earlier, the siblings had been placed in foster care. In mm. that instant, their sweet, smiling faces jumped off the screen and into my heart. I can barely read this. I'm crying over here, That's Brian. Wonderful. She tagged yeah. her husband uh, on the post. By the end of the day, they decided we knew this. these kids were for us. I can't finish the article. Anyway, how powerful is that? So powerful. And what if mm. all of us ask that question at some point in mm. our lives? If not us, then, then who? who? Amen. If not us, then who? Well, that's some good news. Hopefully to inspire you, put a smile on your face, leave us thinking, if not us, then who? I think that's a great way to end. Well, we're really glad that you joined us today. Aubrey and I will be back together tomorrow from four until six. Until then, we hope that you have a great evening. For Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.